Hey, before you see to find two or three people and tell them it's too cold for March 19th. Um, Cause I don't know, man, I don't know if you agree, but for me, it is too cold for March 19th. The only way I want snow in March is if it's in Colorado and I'm on spring break and I can drive away from it at the end of the week. Snow on St. Patrick's Day makes you want to pinch everyone in sight because it's not green and it is too uh, late in the season for cold. We're really glad you're here today. If you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 19 is where we're going to hang out. We are going to finish Matthew chapter 19 after six weeks. We've been in a series called Broken People, Broken Sexuality, Broken Marriage, and the Gospel of Grace. We've been in 12 pretty unknown verses. Um, not that they're private or secret, but not very many people study the first 12 verses of Matthew 19, so we spent a month there. Jesus, uh, he talks about gender. Um, he talks about sexuality. He talks about brokenness. He talks about marriage. He talks about divorce. So we've spent a month kind of unpacking some of those themes. Today, we're gonna get into a text that's very familiar. If you've grown up in church, you've probably heard it. I'm glad we've been where we've been studying what we've been studying because our kids need to know what Jesus says about these things, Amen. Like last week, we talked about parenting through broken sexuality. Uh, one of our team members, Gabe, who runs our communications um, area and our video ministry, showed me a text from a friend in his small group who last week on the way home from church was talking to his six-year-old who had gotten in trouble in church that morning and who often got in trouble in school because he really likes girls and likes flirting with girls and he always gets in trouble at school and at church for flirting with girls. Um, and he told his dad, dad, I can't help it. Um, I think girls are really pretty and I'd like to marry them. Um, <laughs> so his dad got to tell him and talk to him about, listen, you're six, but actually the Bible tells me I should be talking to you about getting married to pretty girls. Like as soon as I can talk to you, I should be talking to you. So like, I'm glad we've gotten to talk to some of, about some of the things that we have gotten to talk about. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, before we jump into the end of Matthew 19 today, let me remind you in two weeks, baseball Sunday here at Journey, you say, what does that mean? Nothing really except that we want you to wear your jersey, we want you to wear your hat, we want your kids to wear their baseball and their softball gear. Um, baseball Sunday's not for us, we're gonna come to church because it's Sunday. Baseball Sunday's for people in your life who may be a part of your sports community who you've been trying to figure out how to invite to church and this is one of those days that might make them think, yeah, that'll be interesting. Slugger will be here, the Royals mascot. He'll be taking pictures before, between, and after some of our services. We'll have popcorn and peanuts and Cracker Jacks in the atrium area. It's just, it's a chance for you to invite some people to church you've been wanting to invite and you're trying to figure out what, what might make them want to say yes. And because it's Palm Sunday on April 2, we will be sure and invite them back to Easter if you can get them here on April 2. So today, Matthew chapter 19, week six of our series, Broken People, Sexuality, Marriage, and the Gospel of Grace. In Matthew chapter 19, if you've grown up around church, you've heard these, this text, you're familiar with it. Um, if you haven't grown up around church, pretty new to the Bible, um, really important story that most Christians know. So kind of tune in a little bit. Matthew 19, 16 says this, just then... A man came up to Jesus, and he asked him, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There's only one who's good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. All these I've kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, I want, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, 
He went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who's rich. You might circle those three words. We'll talk about them and what they mean and do not mean. It's hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. And they asked, well, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. One of the best known stories in the gospels is, as a matter of fact, it's repeated in three of the four. Four New Testament books are called the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the story of Jesus' life in his ministry. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story with a little bit deeper detail, depending on what book you're reading. However, I need you to know that this story isn't probably what you think it's about. This story is not primarily about money and how you use money and how you spend money, and how you give away money. If all you know about the story of the rich young ruler is we should, as followers of Jesus, use our money to help the poor, you are missing the primary point of this story. Because money is the object lesson, but it's not the point or the purpose of this narrative of this conversation that happened 2,000 years ago between Jesus and this man in Israel. As a matter of fact, Matthew 19, 16 through 30 is much more about what I call the litmus test of authentic Christianity than it is about money and how much money you give to the poor. I'm going to give you the outline of the message first, and then I'm going to preach through the outline of the message. So here's what Matthew 19 is going to teach us about what I call the litmus test of authentic Christianity. There's going to be three today. Test number one is we're going to learn that real Christianity is different from religion. Litmus test number two, we're going to learn that the real Jesus rejected people who rejected the authority of God in their life. It's going to be new news to some of you, but very clearly good news from the gospel of Jesus. And litmus test number three, as we really dig into scripture, we're going to learn that real treasure in heaven is a present tense thing, not a future tense thing. It's not something you get, it's something you have if you're a Christian. That primarily are, is what Matthew 19 is going to teach us. Those primarily are the lessons of Matthew 19. So we're going to start with test number one. Real Christianity is different from religion, and hopefully you'll learn something today that might make you have some freedom in your spiritual life. Verse 16 says, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Good question. Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones he required? Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Man, fascinating conversation. We see that this man who approaches Jesus clearly has a very clear picture of who Jesus is. Jesus is the guy who's messaging the world, telling them they can have eternal life in his eternal kingdom, and this man wants that. So this guy's a real clear picture of who Jesus is. He's coming to the right guy 
but he's coming with the wrong questions because Jesus also has a real clear picture of him and he's gonna reveal some things about his heart. Interesting thing, this guy comes to Jesus and says, I want eternal life. And Jesus says, well, you should be doing these things. He says, I am, but I still, still feel something missing. I know there's something more for me. If you know me, maybe you can help me understand what it is and Jesus does that. Now, the person we meet, really good guy. I would think we would want this guy to work for us. I would think that we would want this guy to date our sons and our daughters. I would think we would want a boss who maybe lived his life this way. This is a morally upright man who has great questions. How do I connect to the God of heaven? Is there anything I'm missing in connecting to the God of heaven? His first question is admirable. I want to go to heaven and be close with God. His second question seems to make him a saint. Is there anything else I can do to possibly please you, Jesus? Yet he has a fundamental flaw in his theology, and here it is. He believes his relationship to God is in his hands, not God's hands. See, religion will always ask two questions that are the wrong questions. What can I do to please God? What can I do to earn God's favor? And what can I add to receive blessing from Jesus? Religion is always going to ask the wrong questions. What can I do to earn God's favor? Jesus, what do I need to do to get into eternal life? What can I add to get more of Jesus' blessing? Jesus, is there anything else I can do so that you will give me more? Here's where religion is flawed. The central figure of religion is always me, not God. What do I need to do to get things for me? Is there anything I can do to bless me? The central figure of religion is always me, not God. The central figure of real Christianity is always Jesus, not me. The question religion asks is, what can I do for God? The question Christianity answers is, what did God do for you? Not what do I do to work my way to God, but how has God served me so that I can be connected to him? So, Genuine Christianity doesn't ask, what can I do to earn God's favor? What can I do to get more of Jesus' blessing? However, most of us who grew up in church would say, it sounds like Christianity. I mean, my whole life I was going to church, me too, that was telling me like, you need to do some things. And even like here at Journey, aren't you continuing to like challenge us to like, Add some things to our faith? Like, didn't the Apostle Peter say, add to your faith some of these things? So, like, like, do Christians do things and add things? Or is that not a big deal? Really, really good question. And it's where we need to step in and make sure we give the right answer. The key to understanding the difference between the do and the add of authentic Christianity is where they fit into our salvation and discipleship journey and why we pursue them. Let me say it again. The key difference between the do and the add of authentic Christianity and religion is where they go in our salvation and discipleship journey and why we pursue them. Let me give you an example. Um, anything that tells you you have to do something spiritually to earn your salvation or keep your salvation, that's religion. That's you working your way to God. Anything that tells you that if you do something you can earn God's blessing, that's religion. That's working your way to God. But anything that says because you have become a Christian, you should now do these things to grow in your faith and intimacy with God, well, that's, like, that's discipleship. 
Discipleship is saying, because I am a Christian, now I want to do these things to grow in my faith. Discipleship says, now that I am a Christian and Jesus has connected me to God, I want to add these things to my life so I can serve Jesus and the mission of Jesus and so that Jesus can continue to grow his kingdom in me. So you need to understand that authentic Christianity will never, real Christianity will never tell you you can earn or lose your salvation based on what you do. But real Christianity will also never dismiss discipleship and say that's not important. Every now and then I'll talk to somebody who will come to Journey and they'll, they'll be visiting churches in the area and they're like, man, I just feel like every church is the same. Like they, they want us to get in a group and they want us to serve the community and they want us to go on mission trips and they want us to give in the offering and they want us to read the Bible in a year. Like churches just want us to do all this organized stuff. And I said, wait, 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 time out, time out. Um, do they want you to do those to become a Christian or because you are a Christian? Because if you are a Christian, yes, that's what Christians do because the Holy Spirit lives in them and they're trying to grow spiritually. Now, you don't do these so you can become a Christian, but churches that dismiss discipleship completely are not being very good stewards of the people God has given them who are trying to move forward on their spiritual journey. So I think it's really important to understand. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus and said, what do I need to do? Jesus said, you don't need to do anything, but watch this. He said, you need to die to everything. Authentic Christianity is dying to ourselves, not doing for Jesus. And there is a big difference. I would say it's easier to do for Jesus than to die for self. Because doing for Jesus is usually a buffet. And dying to self, like that's a fixed menu. Like that's a price fix. Or as my daughter said the first time she went, she went the pricks fix menu. And I was like, God bless you, that's price fix fancy. That just means that um, the price is already set for the meal. Real Christianity is dying to self, not doing for Jesus. So the guy comes to Jesus and says, what can I do? Look what Jesus said in verse 21. If you want to be perfect, here's what you got to do. Go and sell everything. Sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then follow me. He looked at him and said, you don't need to do anything more. You need to die to everything first. I had uh, lunch with a friend this week who uh, runs an organization uh, when we sat down, I said, how's, uh, how's things been going? And he said, brutal. I said, what do you mean? He said, the last two weeks have been brutal. And I said, why? And he said, we've been in a two-year process of reorganizing and restructuring our entire business. And he said, we finally put it all into place this week. And he said, it was brutal. He said, it was messy and it was painful and it was filled with tension um, and it about killed everyone, but it was absolutely necessary for our business to accomplish the mission that we have. That is what it means to follow Jesus, to totally reorient and restructure your life around Jesus, who he says he is, who he says you are, and how he wants you to live your life. And listen, it's painful, and it's messy, and it's filled with tension, and it's brutal, but it is necessary, Jesus says, if you want to follow him According to what the Bible says about real Christianity, he did not just say this to some rich guy in Matthew 19. He said this to the whole world in Matthew 16 when he said in Matthew 16, 24, 25, and 26, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus says real Christianity is surrender to the Messiah. 
Real Christianity is not building a list of morality. Real Christianity is dying to the Messiah. So in this series, we've been talking about brokenness, broken people, broken sexuality, broken marriage. You say, what does that look like? In the, what does real Christianity look like in that context? It means I bring my brokenness to Jesus and I don't say, what do I do with this? We say, I surrender this. I'm broken and I can't, there's nothing I can do to fix it. I need you. It means we bring our broken sexuality to Jesus and say, here's how I think, feel, desire, love, pursue sexual things. Not what do I do with it? Here it is. I surrender it. It's yours now. It means I take my broken marriage or I take the brokenness in me because of a past broken marriage and I don't ask, what do I do to finally get healthy? I just say, Jesus, like, here, here's my stuff. This is broken and I surrender it to you. Some of you fighting with addictions and hangups and habits are trying to figure out what to do to get healthy. You don't do anything. You just die to it and say, Jesus, here. I'm broken and I need help. Real Christianity is different from religion in that religion says, build your moral list. And Christianity says, die to the Messiah and let him do what only he can do for you. Amen? Amen. That's what the Bible pretty clearly says. What else do we learn? Number two, we learn that the real Jesus, the real Jesus, the biblical Jesus, rejects people who reject God's authority, at least according to the Bible. Where is that? Let's pick it up today and... Uh, the last half of verse 17. The guy comes to Jesus, what do I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Interesting that we learn here that religion does not truly feel your soul. Like, I'm doing all the stuff to make myself a good person. Still feel like something's missing. Jesus like, yeah, there's something missing. Well, this man was certainly very religious. Jesus challenged to him, revealed his heart towards God, and his heart towards God had a gap in it. His heart toward, towards God had a hole in it. Um, I wonder how many of you in, saw the uh, 1956 version of Charlton Heston's movie, The Six Commandments. Anybody see that one? Or maybe in 1998, The Prince of Egypt, the animated movie came out, talking about the escape from Egypt and the Six Commandments. Are any of you see that movie? The answer is none of us saw either of those movies because there's not Six Commandments. There's how many? There's 10, which means the scholar of the Bible looks a little deeper into this conversation and says, what's Jesus doing? Because the guy's like, how do I connect to God? And Jesus is like, you got to follow the commandments. He says, which one? And he gives him six. See that? Now, for those of us who know a little bit of scripture, we know that of the Ten Commandments, four are, are in our relationship to God, and six are in our relationship to humanity. So Jesus starts with the six morality ones that are basically how you treat people. You got to follow the commandments. What are the commandments? What will steal? Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Honor your mom and dad. Don't covet. Like, take care of your neighbor. Guy's like, I do all those. What am I lacking? And Jesus said, the first four. Because God is not your God. Money is your God. The first one is don't have any gods besides me. I want to be God. 
Second one is don't make anything a God by making it an idol. Third one is don't take the Lord's name in vain, which means don't add a, it does not mean don't add a cuss word after the name God. It means don't use God's name to make up your own stuff. That's what it means to take God's name in vain. Not to cuss using God's name, but to use God's name incorrectly to justify something that God doesn't. Fourth commandment is about Sabbath. God is your rest. He's your trust. He's gonna take care of you. Jesus summarizes those four commandments, his relationship to God with, here's the one thing you lack. You, you've made God your money. Something besides God is your God, and you're gonna have to give that up. What I find very, very interesting is in Matthew 10, 21, and I wanna answer specifically a question that came after the 830 service. As Mark tells the story in Mark 10, 21, Mark says that Jesus looked at this man and loved him and said, there's one thing you lack. Go sell all your possessions, give to the poor, then you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Jesus looked at him and loved him, but then said, here's the standard. Like God has to be God. So the, this point of the message is Jesus rejected people who rejected God's authority. I got a message from somebody watching online after the 8th, 3rd service. Wait, wait a minute, are you saying Jesus doesn't love everyone? No, Je Jesus loves everyone. He even loved this guy who he ended up rejecting because this guy was unwilling to come to him on his requirements and on his standards. Did he love him? Yes. Did he reject him? Yes. At least according to the Bible. Because this one area in this man's life had become his God, and he did not want God or God's son touching this area. The foundation of the Christian faith always comes down to one question. Is God really God, or have I kept spiritual veto power over any area of my life? Now, for some of you, this message might be about money because that is the one spiritual area in your life you've kept your veto power. For some of you, it might be over bitterness or forgiveness. For some of you, it might be over pornography. For others of you, it might be in the area of sexuality. Like, God has allowed you to, to tell you to do anything, but this thing is off limits. And for this man, this thing was off limits. God was not allowed to talk to him about his money. And here's what we need to understand. Underneath every area of spiritual trust is a power struggle over who gets authority. And Jesus is like, for God to be God for you, money can't be God because you've got a power struggle going on. And for God to be God, money can't be God. And this guy said, I don't think I can make, I don't think I can make that, I don't think I can make that transition. I am um, this year reading a daily devotional with um, our elders and several friends in the church called New Morning Mercies by Paul David Tripp. It's really, really good. And this week after I'd already put this message together on March 15th, I was reading through it, um, and Tripp is talking about Job and his friends trying to figure out how to convince God of an area where God might have been wrong and they were right. And then at the end of the book, if you've never read Job, like God comes along and he asks them a series of like 240 questions that they cannot answer. And basically they're like, okay, you're God, we're not. Our mistake, I'm sorry about that. Um, Trip at the end of this day of devotionals says when it comes to trying to figure out who's really God, says remember your own smallness and frailty. Let yourself be humbled by how little you know and how few things you're able to do. Begin to embrace the utterly laughable irrationality of ever thinking that in any situation, any location, any relationship, it would ever be possible for you to be smarter than God. 
Laugh at the delusion of your own grandeur. Mock the illusion of your own glory. And in humble gratitude for grace that humbles, bow down and worship God. When we have a power struggle with God in any area, Jesus is telling this rich young ruler, what I am asking from you is that you just like give up this power struggle. It's why we know that this area is not just about Christians have to give all their money to the poor. As a matter of fact, Jesus didn't tell anyone else in the Bible that to be a Christian, you have to give all your money to the poor. No other author in scripture said to be a Christian, you have to give all your money to the poor, which means Jesus wasn't talking about money. He was talking about authority. He's trying to figure out who's gonna be in control of this area of your life. So when Jesus used the phrase, someone who is rich, basically he was saying someone who places their security in something other than me, it's gonna be really hard for them to let go and follow me. Jesus demands we surrender control of the things in our life that we believe can bring us security and peace apart from God. For this guy, it was money. For you, it might be something else. Jesus is saying it's really hard for somebody who has already decided they are never going to give this to God to enter the kingdom of heaven because they just don't trust God enough. You know, I love history. Uh, I love studying the history of America. I love studying the history of uh, the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln's one of my favorite guys. And if you've studied much about the Civil War, um, his general who ended up finally ending the war was a guy by the name of Ulysses S. Grant whose nickname was Unconditional Surrender. Like you know you are not only a big time war general but a successful war general when one of your nicknames throughout history is Unconditional Surrender. Because every time he would win a battle over the southern states, they would send back their terms of surrender and he would always send back a one sentence reply. We are requesting unconditional surrender or we're gonna keep fighting. You do not get to pick the terms of how you surrender, unconditional surrender, or we're just gonna keep killing people. You need to understand that's what Jesus asked for. Unconditional surrender. That's what he's asking this rich young ruler for. One thing you lack, you have not unconditionally given your whole life to God and trusted God with that. When you do that, you'll be ready. Unconditional surrender. Now, that's not popular in today's church. And I would say this, uh, in the last 15 or 20 years, there's been a significant shift in the terminology that evangelical Christians use. And I think um, partly for good reason, to be honest with you. Journey actually has a little bit of this in our DNA. Um, around 2000, someone in the, the world of popular Christianity began to get the idea that so many people had had bad experiences with Christians and Christianity, and very specifically denominational churches, that evangelical Christians kind of stopped identifying themselves as Christians, because that was like a bad word in society for people who'd had bad experiences. And a lot of denominations either removed themselves from a denomination or they took the name Baptist Presbyterian Methodist. They took it off their sign. So like between 2000 and now, lots of churches in our city have at least changed the sign outside their church and they've taken off the denomination because they thought someone has had a bad experience there. They've not had a bad experience with Jesus, but they've had a bad experience with Christians or they've had a bad experience with the church in the past. So we're just gonna, we're gonna be all about Jesus and we're not gonna identify ourselves as anything but Jesus people. Love it, honestly love it. 
A lot of people have referred to themselves as Christ followers rather than Christians or as Jesus people rather than Christians because there's this stereotype of Christians. But along the way, somehow that has been turned into in churches that the reason we don't call ourselves Christians and the reason we don't put the denomination out on the sign is because those terms feel exclusive. Um, And if the opposite of exclusive is inclusive, we want people to know that like Jesus loves them and they'll be included. But the word inclusive has kind of been hijacked to mean accepts everything all the time. And by that definition, Jesus is not inclusive because the real Jesus rejected this guy for rejecting God's authority. Did he love him? Yes. Did he accept him on his standards rather than God's standards? No. No. So we got to be careful as Christians what language we use because this thought that, well, Jesus just accepts anyone. I'm always like, what? when I hear someone say that, well, Jesus just accepts everyone, I always say, time out, which one? Which, like, the real Jesus in the Bible or like, hey, Zeus, it works at La Fuente. Like, help, like, help me understand. <laughs> help me understand, like, may, maybe you know a different one than I do. Help me understand which Jesus just accepts everyone. Because I meet one in Matthew 19 who rejected someone. This same Jesus would not only reject the Pharisees and Sadducees, he would tell them, you are children of the devil. If that doesn't sound the opposite of inclusive, I don't know what does. Like, that's, that's, pretty, like, that's pretty harsh language. This Jesus in the Bible would curse entire towns and regions of the country at once. If the works that were done in you had been done in different parts of the world, they would have repented. Now there'll be a hotter place in hell for you because you have rejected God's only way of salvation. That's the real Jesus. The real Jesus is the one who told the disciples when Judas ran out on them, he was doomed to destruction from the beginning because it was never about me. It was all about him. And this Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 looked at his disciples and looked at this guy who he loved, who he had invited to become a part of his kingdom, who had said no, and said, that guy's not going to make it. And there's a lot of people like him who, because they refuse to do things my way, aren't going to make it. Now, listen, clarity is kindness. You say, Jesus sounds hard-hearted. No, Jesus is basically saying this. Why would I want anyone in heaven who doesn't want me to be king? Because that what, that's what happens there. So Adam and Eve get free will, and so does everyone else. And if they're not willing to come on my standards, if they reject me, then I'll reject them. He called Jerusalem. He wept over Jerusalem because it was doubly rejected. He said, this entire city has rejected me, and now God's going to reject them. And it broke his heart. But the real Jesus rejected people who rejected God's authority. So we got to be like really, really careful how we kind of walk through scripture and just make Jesus seem like a good guy who accepts everyone all the time. And it's kind of always been this way. Before we meet a rich young ruler in the New Testament, we meet a rich old man in the Old Testament. His His name was Abraham. And he also had an item of extreme importance to him, his son, Isaac, who was to be the promise of everything that God had promised for him. And God kind of made him the same deal that Jesus made with the rich young ruler. You give up that, 
and you'll receive the promise. And Abraham had no idea how it was gonna work out or how painful and messy it would be. He just knew that he could trust God with what God was saying to him. And we have people now in the progressive church world that are telling people trying to come to Jesus who are gay, your sexuality is your Isaac. Whatever you do, don't give it up. Who are telling the gay community, your sexuality is the wealth of the rich young ruler. Whatever you do, don't give it up. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to. But if you don't, you're going to walk away. Because entry into my kingdom is based on people who will accept my authority in their life and trust my authority in their life. Now, how can we say that and not be hard-hearted? It's because of litmus test number three and what we believe. We believe our real treasure in heaven is present tense, not future tense. We believe our treasure in heaven, our real treasure in heaven is present tense, not future tense. It's not something we get, it's something that we have. Look at verse 21 and then verses 27 through 29. The rich young ruler says, what do I need to do? Jesus is like, surrender everything. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Verse 27, Peter's like, we did that. We left everything to follow you. What is, is there going to be treasure in heaven for us? Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. A couple things here and then we'll close. First, please understand our treasure in heaven is not a stack of cash waiting in eternity. Our treasure in heaven is Jesus on the throne of our hearts now. Think about treasure being a thing. Think about heaven being a place. Don't think about treasure in heaven being a time in the future. Jesus says, if you have me, you have everything you need. And I'm gonna be in heaven. So like right now, you and I have a treasure named Jesus. Where is he? He's in heaven. We have treasure in heaven right now. Treasure in heaven is not a one day in the future thing. Treasure in heaven is a two-day thing for Christians. Like we have a treasure in heaven today. His name is Jesus. And Jesus is saying to this rich young ruler, I know it will feel like you're giving up everything, but you will receive me, and that will be enough, and that will be eternal. Trust me. I will be your treasure in heaven. You'll be safe from worry about whether or not you're connected to God. You'll be safe from work. How much more do I have to do to be accepted by God? You will have Jesus, and that will be enough. Please hear me today. For those of you trying to figure out what new thing do I do, what extra thing do I have to do, what do I need to do so that I can go to heaven, all you have to do is receive Jesus. When you have Jesus, you have enough, and you are eternal. Jesus is our treasure in heaven. Not one day, today. Jesus is our treasure in heaven today. And because he is our treasure in heaven, I love this, scripture says that we are his treasure in heaven. We have treasure in heaven in Jesus and Jesus' treasure in heaven is us. He calls us in scripture his treasured possession. You have a treasure in heaven, his name is Jesus. Jesus has a treasure in heaven and it's you. He says you are his treasured possession. In Luke chapter 10, the disciples went out to do some ministry and it went really, really well. 
And it says in Luke 10, they came back rejoicing that the spirit submitted to him. And Jesus is like, this is unbelievable. I fell, I, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Like they were rejoicing, like the team that upset your team in March Madness. Like if you can picture Jesus and the players in the locker room, they were jumping around, they were dumping water on their head. Jesus didn't rip off his shirt like the idiot coach from Arkansas and whirled around because he'd been there before and because like, he, like he'd done bigger and better things in his life. Like they're having a party because like the ministry's gone well. And Jesus is like, time out, time out, hold on. He's like, this is all really cool. But here's what's better. Don't rejoice in how well the ministry went. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Like, did you know your name is written in heaven? Rejoice that your name's in heaven because you are Jesus' treasured possession. In Exodus 28, we read that the high priest of Israel, before he could represent the nation to God, had to wear the names of the tribes over his heart. Remember that? Two stones, six names each. So every time the high priest of Israel went to God on behalf of the people, he had their names on his heart. You say, is my name on Jesus' heart? Better, better. Revelation 21 says that if you're a follower of Jesus, your name is in the Lamb's book of life. And one day when the Lamb's book of life is open to judge the living and the dead, all those who have followed Jesus will be invited into eternity, not based on their morality, but based on the Messiah. So your name is in the Lamb's book of life, but where else is it better, better? In Isaiah 49, the prophet Isaiah is talking to the people Israel. And they're discouraged and they're distracted because things weren't going well in their world and they're asking, does God still care about us? Are we going to be okay? And listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 8 and 9 and 14 through 16. It says, this is what the Lord says, in the time of my favor, I'll answer you. And in the day of salvation, I'll help you. I'll keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. To say to the captives, come out and those in darkness be free. Verse 14, but Zion, that's another name for Israel. But Zion said, the Lord's forsaken me. The Lord's forgotten me. Listen to God's response. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she is born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands and your walls are ever before me. When you look at the hands of Jesus in heaven, you see what? You see the scars. He sees you. He sees your name, your life, your story worth dying for because there was nothing you could do to work your way to God. There was nothing you could add to earn blessing from God. So Jesus said, I'll go in their place. I'll live the perfect life they could not live. I will die the death they don't want to live. And Jesus, if you will let me carry them spiritually, I will connect them to you. That is the picture of the gospel. That when Jesus is our treasure in heaven, we are his treasure in heaven. Amen? Amen. And we are written on the palms of his hands. I want to thank you for hanging with me the last six weeks. I told you at the beginning of the series it wouldn't be our easiest six weeks. I told you it could be a divisive six weeks as we were talking about a divisive topic, but I ask you to hang with me for six weeks, and at the end, we would kind of get there and be in a place where we still trusted Jesus, even in this difficult area of sexuality. 
I've had people ask me during the series, Christian, can you really, like with a straight face, tell people to trust their sexual identity to what Jesus says? And I tell them all, yes, I can. And here's why. Because I've seen his hands. And I know Jesus asked a lot, but I know he gave everything. And I'm just willing to trust that guy. Amen? Amen. Easy? No. Simple? No. Clear? I think so. I think it's pretty clear how we live in order to please God. I don't know what God has said to you through this series or even through this message, but I know this. I ended our first message with it, and I'll end my part of this series with it today. The title of this series appears to be, if you read it from a distance, Broken Grace. But the only thing in the world that is not broken is the grace of God. And no matter where you find yourself, what you're struggling with, what you're struggling through, what you're trying to overcome, the grace of God, the word grace means gift, through Jesus is enough. It's enough. And if you'll bring all that brokenness to him and not say, what do I do with this? But you'll say, I surrender all. Jesus will reach out those nail-scarred hands that tell your story, and he'll bring you and your stuff close, and he'll do what only Jesus can do. But you got to trust him and let him do what he has promised to do. Amen? What's God said to your heart today? What do you need to do as we close our service? We always close with three minutes of just questions on the screen to help your heart to connect to the message and answer some questions. So I'll pray quickly, and then those questions will come up on the screen. And then after they're done, I'll come close us in prayer. But take inventory of what God has said to you about your life and answer these questions, and then we'll pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for the opportunity in this moment to just reflect on what we've heard, to reflect on our own life, and Lord, to turn this conversation into three minutes of prayer. Holy Spirit, be with us in this moment. God of heaven, hear our prayers in this moment. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.